Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Yeah. Hey. 
been working our way verse by verse through the book of Galatians. I hope if you've come away with anything so far that you are amazed and astounded by the grace of God that would save sinners like us. And that you are marveling at the fact that we are so remarkably saved so fully saved, so completely redeemed, so secure in the finished work of Christ. Paul went to Galatia, and he labored, he agonized to teach the Gentiles in Galatia the freedom that they had in Jesus Christ, and that faith in Christ was sufficient to get them all the way to their heavenly destiny. And then having taught them, having formed that doctrine in their heart, he then left. And no sooner did he leave until Judaizers came from Jerusalem, who came to Galatia to try to convince these already spirit-filled Gentiles that what they had from God so far was not sufficient. But then they had to get to work. They had to do something, particularly they advocated that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised. Make yourselves like the Jews and keep some of the law. And Paul is adamant in his response to the Galatian church, saying that returning to the elemental principles that they've been completely delivered from is ultimately going to cause them to fall from grace and that Christ is going to be no help to them at all, anyone who seeks to be justified by the law. In fact, chapter 4, verse 21, Paul is going to say, Tell me, you who want to be under the law. Don't you hear the law? Paul has been adamant about the bondage of the law. And how we become slaves to the law and slaves to our fleshly work and desire and how that is invariably going to fail us and how God is going to have to judge us on the basis of the law if we go to him thinking we are justified by the law. And yet, these folks are being persuaded not only to believe in Christ, but to get religious, to start doing stuff to get active in their flesh, to try to appease God, to try to justify themselves on the basis of what they have done. So we were right in the middle of chapter 4, listening to Paul's argument, and he has just argued that because of Huiothesia, because of son placement, we are now the sons and daughters of God. By the Spirit of God deposited within us, we have been separated from the world. We are considered saints by God, and he calls us children. He calls us sons and daughters. He calls us brethren along with Christ, that we are joint heirs with everything that Christ has already gained for us. That being the case, what are you going to add to that? What more are you going to do? What are you going to accomplish that is going to make God say, well, you know, that did it. A minute ago, I was kind of iffy on you. A few minutes ago, I wasn't sure. But you did that. So, you know, Christ did 99%, but man, you kicked in your 1%, so now you're savable. Paul is adamant against that kind of thinking. And so he says in verse 6 of chapter 4, because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And therefore, you're no longer a slave, a slave to the law, a slave to your flesh, 
but you are now a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. However, at that time, back when you were a slave, at that time, you did not know God. And you were slaves to those which, by nature, are no gods. So there's the contrast. You are either utterly sold out to God, and therefore a child of God, or you are a slave of your flesh. You are a slave of the elemental principles of this world. And you are a slave to things that cannot save you. They are not gods. They are not redeemers. All they are are activity that Paul says perishes with the using. The minute you do it, whatever credit you got from it, from other people, that's all you get. You get nothing eternally for exercising your flesh. At that time, when you did not know God, You were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, now that you have come to be known by God, last week when we read that phrase as we were finishing up, I said it's almost like Paul wrote, now that you're known by God, and then realized, you know, theologically that's not accurate. It's actually now that you've come to be known by God. But then there are also commentators who will tell you that this is Paul looking at salvation from two different perspectives and saying, from our perspective, we have the experience that we have come to know God. From God's perspective, it's only because he knows us that we know him. And I like that interpretation of the text. But I also could see Paul writing, now that you've come to know God, and then realizing, no, no, the most important aspect of it is, now that God knows you, now that God has chosen you, now that God has elected you and chosen you out of all humanity and drawn you to himself, now, as a result of that, how is it that you would turn your back Again, to the weak and the worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. It just makes no sense. Last week, we looked at that phrase, the elemental things, in some detail. Paul is referring to the stuff of the law. He is saying the keeping of Sabbaths or Particular days or new moons or touch not or handle not. All that stuff that perishes with the using, he defines as the elemental things of this world that have no lasting eternal value. And in the context of the Judaizers coming and saying, be circumcised and keep some of the law, Paul is referring to those things as elemental things, worthless things, things that ultimately you're going to be enslaved by, and you already have the Spirit of God. You've already been redeemed by Christ. You're already known by God. Now, what do you need to add to that? How is it then that you turn back again to these weak and these worthless elemental things of the law to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Okay, can we talk about the slavery of the law for just a moment? Yes, let's. Actually, you can't stop me. I have a microphone. You don't. The truth is, if you're following after the law, according to James, if you miss it in any one aspect... You're guilty of the entirety of the law. That's how enslaved you are to the law. That if you miss it in any one aspect, it will condemn you. What was the purpose of the law, according to Paul? The law was given in order to demonstrate how sinful sin really is. Paul even argues in Romans 7 that he didn't know that he was coveting. Until the law came and said, don't covet. 
And then he realized how covetous he was. And he wouldn't have known that if it were not for the giving of the law. The law was never for the purpose of justifying anybody. The law was never for the purpose of saving anybody. The law was for the purpose, as a schoolmaster, of driving you to Christ, of making you realize how badly you need a savior, how badly you need a redeemer because you can't live up to the standard that the law sets. And yet, because we are, in our human nature, just legalists by nature, we want to do something. We want to get credit for something so that when we get to heaven, we can say, yeah, but God, I did that. And you have to give up on yourself completely. You have to give up on your flesh. You have to give up on your own ability to justify yourself, and you have to throw yourself utterly and completely on Christ, who is a fully sufficient Redeemer and Savior. Knowing all that, Paul's astounded that having labored, having spent the time to teach these Galatian Gentiles the truth of salvation by grace through faith, they then would be turned so easily by these Judaizers who would say, yes, Christ, yes, that's good, but you also need to do some stuff. And that's why Paul would say, knowing that God knows you and you know God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons, and years. Okay, so in the Old Testament, in the law, is there ever anything said about um, particular days? Yes. Yeah, repeatedly. There are feasts three times a year where every Jew that can travel is required to go up to Jerusalem. There are Sabbath days. There are Sabbath years. There are Sabbath years of Sabbath years leading to the Jubilee years. There's a whole lot of new moons and Sabbath keeping going on in the law. And God was so serious about those days and those rules that Israel went into the Assyrian captivity. Judah was taken into the Babylonian captivity because they didn't keep those days. And now Paul says, keeping days, paying attention to new moons, keeping feasts doing all that. He said, that's the elemental stuff of this world now. And why would you want to be enslaved to that? Verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you, that I have worked this hard to free you, and now you're going to go back. I'm afraid for you. Because you don't seem to really understand the message of Christ. You don't seem to understand how fully redeemed we are in Christ. You don't seem to understand the phenomenal freedom that we have in the salvation that Christ alone proffers. And I'm afraid for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. And that's where we ended last week. You know the rule. That means everything you've heard so far this morning is all introduction and does not technically count against my time. Verse 12 is very, very funny and ironic, and Paul is going to use a little bit of wordplay here. And he says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I, the NASB adds the extra word am for Grammatical English reasons, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What is he saying there? He's saying, you Gentiles, you weren't in that original law covenant. Israel was at Mount Sinai. When God formed the covenant at Mount Sinai, he formed it between him and Israel. He's very clear about that. And the letters of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, were written on tablets of the covenant, which are then put in a gold box called the Ark of the Covenant. Covenant. He was clearly forming a covenant at Mount Sinai, 
between himself and Israel. And so Paul says, to begin with, you Gentiles weren't part of that covenant. You were free of that covenant. You weren't under the bondage of that covenant. And I, Paul, a thoroughgoing Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, someone who before the law could claim that they were blameless, I have become as free of that covenant and law as you originally were. And now that I'm on your side, you're trying to go back to the side I used to be on. I used to be a lawkeeper. I used to be under the law of Israel. And so I'm begging you now, be like I am, because I became like you used to be. And now you, foolish you, I fear for you, you want to go back to your legalism. You want to go back and be under a covenant of law and restrictions that you were never under to begin with. How crazy is that? I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you. You've done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I evangelized, that I euangelizo, that I came and preached the gospel to you that first time that I came among you. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as if Christ himself. Okay, now the point that Paul is making is that he did not come to them in this tremendous power. He did not look great. In fact, he said that he had a physical ailment, a bodily illness. Now, in a moment, he's going to say, you loved me so much as a demonstration of how much you loved me. If you could, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me, implying that the illness that Paul is talking about was some form of blindness that he had been dealing with. In fact, at the end of the letter of, of Galatians, you know that Paul usually used an amanuensis. He usually used a secretary. He would dictate his letters, and then he would have other men who would write it down for him. Well, at the end of this letter, Paul is going to say, you see what large letters I've written by my own hand. This was something unique. He was demonstrating his love and concern for the Galatians by the fact that he himself sat down, picked up the pen, and wrote. But because he was having these vision problems, he wrote really large letters so that he could see what he was writing. He says, you see what large letters I use to demonstrate my love to you. So in context, when Paul says... I came to you and I had this bodily illness and nevertheless I evangelized you. Nevertheless, I preached the gospel of Christ to you that first time that I was among you. And that which was a trial to you, that which was a test for you, the fact that Paul did not look erudite and strong. Instead, he looked like a weak man. He looked like a man who'd been beaten repeatedly to the point where he had physical ailments, including eyesight problems. And yet, because of the power of the message that he brought them, they received him like an angel of the Lord or like Christ himself. And they loved him with this tremendous love. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe but you received me as an angel of God, as, as Christ himself. Now, why did he bring all that up? Why did he repeat that bit of history that when I was among you, you really loved me to the degree that you were willing to sacrifice for me? He said all that so he could get to verse 15. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? How have you run away from me? How have you changed your attitude toward me? 
Once upon a time, you saw me as an angel of the Lord. You saw me as Christ himself. You saw me as somebody who brought you the good news of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. And you were so happy to hear it. You were so glad in what I was telling you. And now that I'm gone and these Judaizers have come who are putting you back in bondage, who are putting you under slavery to the law, why is it that you've abandoned me so quickly? Where did that sense of blessing go? In fact, for I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. That's how much you loved me. You would have sacrificed for me. Where did that go? How do you now consider me to be an enemy? How is it that you now consider me to be someone who taught you improperly, and now you need to be corrected by these Judaizers from Jerusalem? What has happened? What has changed? You can see why Paul would say, I fear for you. I worry over you. I have labored over you. And this is what you've become? I worry about you. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy? By telling you the truth. Now they, the Judaizers, the ones that are convincing you, the ones that are getting you back under bondage, the ones who want to enslave you all over again, they are eagerly seeking you, but not commendably. In other words, he's saying they don't have a good reason to go after you. They're going after you because you're too free. Remember Paul said, that there were some who had come from James, who had come from Jerusalem, who came in among them. He calls them pseudo-Adelphus, false brethren, who he says they came in to spy out our liberty. They came to see the kind of freedom we have in Christ for the purpose of putting you back in bondage. Because they're in bondage. They want you to be in bondage because misery loves company. And so... They eagerly seek you, but not commendably, not for any truly good reason. But they wish to shut you out, I think Paul means by that phrase. They mean to shut you away from me. I have already taught you the truth in Christ. Now they want me to be an enemy to you. They want you to think of me as somebody who maybe told you some good stuff, but didn't tell you the whole story, didn't tell you that you needed to go back to the law, that you need to be circumcised, and that you need to try to justify yourself before God in the flesh. They're eagerly seeking you. They're not doing it in a commendable way, but they wish to shut you out from this truth in order that you would seek them. Does any of this sound familiar, by the way? Because it's still going on today in modern Christendom. There are plenty of people out there seeking converts, not for any commendable reason, but they're willing to tell you rather than the truth of the gospel, rather than what the Bible says about you, they're willing to tell you good stuff that sounds good so that you'll come back next week and bring your wallet. They'll tell you things like, you're great. God thinks you're great. God thinks you're a handful of aces. And you're doing so good that if you tripped and fell forward, you'd fall right into heaven. You're just doing so good. When the Bible says you're utterly depraved, you're sinners, you're naturally enemies of God. You are naturally enemies of all things that are holy. When you tell people that, they run for the door screaming. But boy, you can fill a stadium in Texas. If you're willing to tell people God is so for you that he wants you to have your best life now. You write those kind of books and say those kind of things to people, they will flock to you. Well, that's what Paul is saying. These people are not telling you the truth. They're not telling you about Christ. They're trying to put you back in bondage because they're seeking you. 
but not for good reason. They're seeking you so that you'll follow them because that's what they really want. Within the Christian church, and please hear me if you've heard nothing else I've said this morning, if you're just this side of dozing at this point, if you're thinking Jim seems very long-winded this morning, and I do, if you've heard nothing else this morning, realize there's only one celebrity in the church. Amen. There's only one object of worship in the church. There's only one person we should be following, and it's not the person who's doing the talking. There's one hero within the Christian church. There is one focus. The Christian church is Christocentric. It starts with Christ. It ends with Christ. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. And he is everything in between. So whenever you read Paul saying or whenever you see in the church today, whenever you see people working really hard to gather followers who are willing to compromise the message of the Bible for the sole purpose of gathering followers, then you know they're not doing it biblically. Biblically, they'd be sending you, pointing you to Christ, the fully sufficient Savior. That's what Paul has done here for the Galatians. And then they are being persuaded to go back to legalism. Where is that sense of blessing that you used to have toward me? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, but not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. In other words, Paul is saying, you ought to be like I am. You ought to be free in Christ. You ought to be seeking to live the way I live. That is a commendable thing. That is a gospel way of living. Therefore, it's a good thing to seek the right thing. It's a good thing for you to be seeking the things of Christ rather than for somebody to be steering you away from Christ in order to draw converts to himself. It's good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Paul uses that language of birth yet again and says, I'm laboring over you. I'm going through labor. Brindley, um, you recently had a little experience with labor. Uh, didn't mean to point you out that way. That was a tad surprising to you. Sorry. Uh, labor. Fun? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would not say fun. Uh, not fun. Not yeah, not, yeah. <laughs> nothing commendable about that. Not encouraging people to go through it. The end result, great. That's what Paul's saying here. You are my children, Because I labored over you. I agonized in teaching you. I had to get you away from these idols that were not gods, who could not help you, that couldn't talk, that couldn't think, that couldn't tell you the future, that couldn't preserve you eternally. And for heaven's sake, if they were going to be moved, you had to pick them up and carry them. These are not gods. And I labored to deliver you from those gods and to deliver you to the truth of salvation by grace through faith. And so I was in labor over you until Christ was formed in you. That good end result that comes from the not fun of labor, if that was a grammatical sentence. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, but I am truly perplexed by you. 
You know, as we've been making this argument, as we've been looking at what Paul has written, there have been several times that we have all collectively just kind of gone, what are they thinking? Why, if you already have the spirit of Christ in you, why, if you are already eternally saved, why, if Christ has already been formed in your heart, why would you think that you need to do more to complete the process? And why, then, would you diminish what Christ has already done in favor of your own ego, in favor of you being able to say, yeah, but I did stuff, I added my part. That is to diminish the finished work of Christ. You can see that Paul would look at them and say, I don't get it. How is it that you understood the truth when I left you, and now I hear that you've turned away and want to be enslaved again? What are you thinking? So at this point, Paul decides that what he needs is an allegoreo. That's the word that has moved into the English language as an allegory. And he's going to prove that the theology that he has taught the Galatians is actually the theology that has already existed in the scripture. In fact, he's going to reach all the way back to the book of Genesis in order to prove it, to demonstrate that this has always been the way that God has worked. This has always been the way that salvation has worked. And he's going to demonstrate it by teaching exactly, point for point, piece by piece, what the scripture says about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. So let's read the rest of chapter 4. And to really understand this allegoreo, in order to understand Paul's point, it's going to take us more time than we have this morning. So I'd like to introduce you to this, and then next week, we'll get to dig further into the details. Let's start by going to the book of Genesis. Turn back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 21. And let's be familiar with the story that Paul is about to make reference to. Because on its face... It just seems like a story of two um, argumentative women. I'm glad that when I said that, several of the women in the room smiled at me. I I knew I was taking a chance there. Chapter 21 of the book of Genesis. The Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Okay, what did he promise Sarah? Well, he promised her that she was going to have a natural-born child. Abram, before his name was changed to Abraham, had no children. And God promised him, your posterity is going to be like the sands of the seas and the stars of the heavens. Abram disagreed with God and said, no, at this point, my heir is Eliezer of Damascus who is a servant in my household. But he's going to inherit everything because I have no children. And so God told Abram, you and Sarah are going to have a child. And then God waited. After making that promise to him, God waited another 20 years before he actually did it. Well, during that time, Abraham and Sarah apparently decided that You know, the promise of God was good, but in order to make it come true, we got to get busy in our own flesh. We're going to have to do some of this ourselves. We're not going to be able to just count on God to accomplish it. And so Sarah suggests to her husband, you know, I have a handmaid named Hagar. Why don't you go into the tent with Hagar and perhaps you can produce this heir that God was talking about? And so sure enough, Hagar got pregnant. She produces a child, and Abram loved his firstborn boy. And yet, despite the fact that they tried to accomplish God's promises and will by their flesh, God ultimately says, that's not the child of promise. That's not the one I told you was going to come between you and Sarah. And that's what this is talking about in Genesis 21, that the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. 
So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born to him, which Sarah bore to him, called his name Isaac. Do you know what the name Isaac means? Laughter, which is a great name. Next time you're thinking of names for your kids, Charlie, where are you? Itzhak is a great name, a good Hebrew name. It means laughter. Because when Sarah first heard that she was going to become pregnant, even though she was past childbearing years, she stood at the door of the tent and laughed. And God even confronted her and said, why did you laugh? And she said, oh, I didn't laugh. No, no, no. She was caught. She went, no, I didn't, I didn't laugh. But when the child was born, the child's name is Isaac laughter. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. So Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Abraham was really tired. You read that in the white part between the two. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. And now Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, her handmaid, whom she had borne to Abraham, that child, that son, she saw the son, and therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out the maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, for through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Through Isaac, your seed shall be called. That phrase is picked up repeatedly in the New Testament in order to demonstrate the difference between the child of the flesh and the child of promise. Okay, now that's the backstory for what Paul is going to pick up in the book of Galatians. And he's going to allegorize that and say that it is a demonstration of the law covenant versus the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith. And that one of them needs to be thrown out. Here's how Paul puts it. I'm in Galatians 4. We're starting at verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not hear the law? If you ever really understood the law, if you ever listened actually to the law, the 613 ordinances of the law, if you ever really heard it, you'd realize, I can't do that. First off, there's not even a temple to go over and worship in. You can't keep the law today. So why, you who want to go back and be under the law, do you even hear it? Do you even understand it? And now he begins recounting the story we just read. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One, Ishmael, was by the bondwoman. And one, Isaac, by a free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, he was born the way that children are naturally born. A father and a mother, a male and a female, joining together and making a child. So he was a child of the flesh. But the son of the free woman was the result of a promise. Because God made a promise to two people who were past childbearing years that the two of them were going to produce a child. So the contrast is huge in Paul's mind. One is a natural-born child who, by the way, has been a thorn in the flesh to the children of Isaac ever since. Whenever you look at the world, whenever you look at the Middle East and you think, this is nuts, what's going on over there? 
You have to know your book of Genesis. If you understand the book of Genesis, you know why there's still trouble in the Middle East. And you know why, no matter how many delegates go to the Middle East and try to work out peace pacts, they can't ever make a lasting peace pact over there. Because the hatred between these two people groups goes all the way back to this story. The descendants of Ishmael, the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, who are the Arab folks. And the descendants of Isaac, who through Isaac is your seed going to be called. Those are the Israelites. Those are the Jews. So they're still arguing over the land over there because they both claim Abraham as their father. And they both say that they have the first right, the right of the firstborn to inherit the land. So again, you can't even understand world geopolitics if you don't understand your Bible. It's written that Abraham had two sons. One by the bondwoman and one by a free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And the son of the free woman was born according to a promise. This is, allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants. Now he's going to define what the two covenants are. One of those covenants is proceeding from Mount Sinai. What covenant was formed at Mount Sinai? The law. So Hagar represents the law, and she's a perfect typification of the law because she was a slave. And her child, therefore, was not a freeborn child. This is allegorically speaking for these women, our two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. That's Hagar. So he doesn't leave anything open for question. He makes it very clear. Hagar is a typification of the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. She was a slave. Her child, therefore, was a slave. And the law continues bearing children of slavery because they are under the bondage of that law. That's Hagar. You got it? Got it. Okay, now listen to the contrast. Am I boring you? No. Okay. I know I'm enjoying this, but I might be the only one. So, Verse 25, now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. The Jerusalem above, what interesting language. We just got done going through the book of Revelation. And at the end of the book of Revelation, we saw the new Jerusalem that was coming down out of heaven. That's the contrast to the Jerusalem which was in Paul's day. The Jerusalem that is, that's what Paul's referring to. The Jerusalem that is still in bondage to the law. The Jerusalem that is sending people to try to convince you to be circumcised and follow after some aspects of the law. That Jerusalem is still in bondage, but there's also a Jerusalem that is coming from above, and she is our mother. Because she's the one who had children of promise. She's the one who delivered the child called laughter, joy. She's the one who produced a freeborn child, not a slave child. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it's written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. We'll get into all those details next week. That's a quote out of the book of Isaiah. But let's just get through this. The clock is working against me. You, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. In what way can it be said that we, sitting here today, Gentile believers, in which way Can Paul say that we are children of promise? Well, given his whole theology in this letter, it's obvious that, first off, we're not slaves. And we're not supposed to be in bondage to slavery because we are freeborn. And because we are children, brethren of a freeborn child, why would we ever go back to slavery? 
Why would we ever go back to the legal elements that would bind us again so that we would fall from grace so that Jesus wouldn't be any help to us? That would be insane. And yet that is what people just naturally gravitate toward. And so Paul is laboring here to explain that we... Being redeemed by God, being chosen by God, being indwelt by his Holy Spirit, we are set free by Christ. The same Christ who said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He has already freed us. We are, get used to this, make the t-shirts, get the bumper stickers. We are the children of the free. I like that title. We're free children. We're not children of slaves. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of that promise that God made. That promise that Abraham was going to have descendants like the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. That promise that through his descendants, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. And now here we are coming to Christ as a result of God making that promise. So why is it that you know anything about Christ? Why is it that you've come to understand anything about the Bible? It's not because you got busy and worked it out in your flesh. It's not because you figured it out because you're so smart. It's because by promise, God sent his son to die for you, put his spirit in you in order for you to understand everything that he has already accomplished, making you free, free, free indeed. I can worship that God. That's a God I can get behind and say, yes, you are the absolute savior. You don't require or need. You are not made better by anything from me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Save me. Make me free. You, brethren, like Isaac, are the children of promise. But even as at that time, He who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. And so it is also now. That's a fact. I get letters every week from people who say, that gospel you preach, that sounds too much like Calvinism. That gospel you preach, you set people too free. You always got to throw a little bit of law on people or they'll go crazy on you. And I, I agree. If, if you were just set free on your own reconnaissance, uh, yeah, you'd go nuts. But if you have the governor of the Holy Spirit of God residing inside you, then you can be truly free from the law and the restrictions and the requirements of the law that would otherwise enslave you because you have the governor of God living within you. Therefore, you become better than you already were, a thing that the law could not accomplish in you. The spirit of God residing in you quite naturally accomplishes, and that sets you free. I like the phrase, I'm not like I used to be but I'm not what I'm going to be. That's true. We're in the process right now, and that process is being put forward in our lives by the Spirit of God, not by the law. You get it? Got it. Do you get it? Got it. Okay. But as it is, or as it was at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who has been born according to the Spirit, And so it is now also, and it continues to be. We who are completely free in Christ, there are plenty of people who want to bring us back into bondage. There are plenty of people who want to make us like them. So what is Paul's answer? How should we respond to those who want us to go back to bondage? How do we respond to those who are only trying to draw followers to themselves And then telling you all the stuff you got to do. How are we supposed to respond? Are we supposed to go along to get along? Are we supposed to say, well, you know, it's just a difference of opinion. But we can probably find some common ground. But what does the scripture say? It says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be 
an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but we are children of the free. And how are you going to demonstrate your freedom? Number one, you're going to follow Christ and him alone. Number two, every time somebody comes along and tries to put you back in bondage under the law, cast them out. That's the biblical answer. Cast them out. That's what it says. Paul reached all the way back to the book of Genesis to say that's the way it's always been. The answer to legalism is get out. You're not going to bind my conscience to the things that can't help me. And especially as we get into the next chapter of the book of Galatians, when Paul is going to say, you who desire to be under the law, you who seek to be justified by the law, Christ is no help to you and you have fallen from grace. Do you really want no grace? Do you really want Christ to be no help to you? Well then, tell the bondage seekers, get out. Because I am fully sufficient in the finished work of Christ. You don't get to make me one of your followers because I am a child of the free. listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.